would like to have to Chronicles chapter 33 open in front of you and our text is really verses 12 and 13 of that passage and looking at this man Manasseh. Now just to give you some background in the Old Testament there are two sets of books which give us the lives of the kings who ruled and reigned in those ancient times over the people of God. So you have one and two kings and one and two chronicles and they are historical books but they also give great spiritual insight and application. And uh, just to say that in the history of Israel after the days of King Solomon, the kingdom of Israel divided. And so you had the northern kingdom, which remained the title Israel, and then a southern kingdom called Judah. Now, we've got not got time this morning to look at all the reasons why that division happened. In a sense, you could say that it was terrible judgment on them for their rebellion against the Lord, for their sin. But the kingdom separated. And so they had their own lines of kings and rulers after the days of Solomon. And in the books of the kings, you have the record of both northern and southern rulers. But in the two books of Chronicles, particularly Second Chronicles, you have the records of the kings of the south, Judah, alone. And so you have these accounts of the lives of these kings of Judah. And they don't just focus on the accomplishments, rather the character of these men who rule. And what sort of men they were in the, the judgment of God and were shown their, their virtues as well as their vices, the things they were enabled to do for the Lord and also their rebellion and their sin against God. And so in this passage in 2 Chronicles 33, you have the lives of two kings, Manasseh and his son Amon. And as I said, in view this morning is Manasseh. And so we need to ask the question, well, who was it? Who was Manasseh? Well, there are a number of things to see. Firstly, he was the son of a great and godly king called Hezekiah. In fact, in the scriptures, Hezekiah stands out as one of the very best kings that is mentioned in the word. He was still a sinner. He wasn't perfect, and yet he was helped to do many great things for the Lord. And he was a man who, on the whole, wanted to honor God, and the Lord blessed him. And uh, he was one of maybe four kings of Judah who stand out as great spiritual men and leaders. You know, just to mention the others, there was Asa and his son Jehoshaphat, both excellent men. Hezekiah was another. And the fourth is mentioned in the next chapter, and that's Josiah. And some of you will know he brought about great spiritual reform in the land. But you know, the Bible is always realistic. It doesn't try to cover over flaws and difficulties and faults and sin. Alongside the good, it lays out the bad. I know it's a tragedy, by the way, that out of the 20 or so monarchs who ruled over Judah, only four or so could be termed good. And that shows how sin has ruined even the, the very best of nations and the best of kingdoms and the best of royal families in a sad reflection. But he's the son of Hezekiah. And then also, verse 1, we're told that he was very young when he became king. He was only 12 years old when he began to rule over God's people at similar age to some of the youngsters here this morning. And it seems that Manasseh was born to Hezekiah towards the end of his life. Some of you will know that Hezekiah was in the prime of his life and God struck him down with an illness and it was so severe that he was expecting to die. And in desperation, Hezekiah called upon the Lord 
and prayed that God would have mercy upon him and extend his life. And the Lord, through the mouth of the prophet Isaiah, gave Hezekiah an answer to his prayer and an extra 15 years of life. How gracious the Lord is. In fact, in Isaiah 38, even uh, Hezekiah was given this miraculous sign by the Lord that this life had been granted. You can read it. It's a, a sundial. It has a shadow on it. And as Hezekiah looked at the sundial, the shadow went backwards 10 degrees. It was a, a confirmation. Now, the discussion about whether those extra 15 years were a blessing or not is another time. But one of the great difficulties that came was that Manasseh was born and uh, he would become heir of the throne. So he was young, 12, when he became king. And he was a very wicked king. Regardless of his family background, Manasseh was an exceedingly wicked man. In fact, it could be termed that he was the worst king who ever sat upon the throne of the southern kingdom. And uh, he was uh, you know, clearly in line to be one of the worst kings of all. Verse 2, he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. And you say, well, what does that mean? Well, he was an abominable man who encouraged idolatry. And he established the worship of pagan deities all around the land. He even brazenly brought the, the pagan practices, his dead idols, into the temple itself, the place set apart for the worship of God, consecrated, set aside, he brought his idols in. He also, we're told in the passage, promoted appalling practices which were very dark. You know, he made his children go through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom. You say, well, what's that? Well, it's a form of pagan worship in which those who were devoted to this false god Hinnom, this form of Baal worship, would start great fires and then force their children to go through them. Now, of course, these poor children would be consumed. They would be burnt to death as a human sacrifice to a false deity. And Manasseh was involved in all of that. He indulged in the things of darkness, in superstition and spiritualism and witchcraft, all manner of things. And for over 50 years, he led the nation into darkness, promoting these things, pointing people away from the Lord, rebelling against the Lord. In fact, in 2 Kings 21, you find a more detailed account of his wickedness as the writer shows that this reign of rebellion and evil would lead to the exile of the nation. And he, he warns the readers there, but it says that he filled Jerusalem with the blood of innocence. He was a, a murderer. He was a butcher. He was a hater of God. He, uh, he loved evil. And if you look at verse 10, see again the graciousness of God. And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen. You know, such was the kindness of God that the warnings still came to Manasseh and the people throughout this time, but he would not listen. They would not listen. And friend, there are always consequences to such disobedience and wickedness. And so God brought his judgment and his punishment and Manasseh, we're told in the passage, was defeated by the king of Syria. And he was carried away to a terrible dark prison. The people were taken into exile. But something incredible happens. And it's recorded in our text. The Lord met with him. And in his chains, in his affliction, he is convicted, he is humbled, 
and he is brought to cry out to the Lord. It says, verse 12, Now when he was in affliction, he implored the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed to him, and he received his entreaty, heard his supplication, and brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. And so the writer, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, includes the story of Manasseh's repentance to encourage readers after the exile and us not to despair. You know, when the people of Judah were back in the promised land, no doubt as they reflected on the extent of their rebellion against the Lord, you know, they would have been thinking, you know, could the Lord really forgive us? Has he really forgiven us? But here is the wonder of grace. If even Manasseh could repent and be redeemed, so could they if they walked in repentance and faith. And really that, that simple lesson is the heart of what I desire to say to you this morning. You know, you've seen something of the depravity of this man's heart, his sin, his rebellion, his wickedness, his cruelty, his idolatrous tendencies. And yet, this man was brought to know God. He was converted, he was blessed with salvation, his great sins were forgiven, and Manasseh is now in glory. And you say, well, how, how could it be? The astonishing grace of God. And it gets to the very heart of the truth of God and the gospel of God and the salvation to be found in Jesus Christ. And you know, the conversion of this man, Manasseh, shows that we should never, ever despair of anyone in this life. You know, let me explain what I mean. You know, no matter how wicked, how hard-hearted, how clinging to their sin they may be, this passage of Scripture proves that they are not so hard, but that God may convert them. And God can draw them to himself and give them all the grace that they need to repent and believe. You know, maybe you've come this morning and, you know, there are loved ones on your heart and you look at them and they're so hard-hearted and you think, it's impossible They'll never be saved. Here's the hope for the most unlikely. You know, Manasseh, Manasseh sought the Lord and he, he humbled himself before God. And he, he cried out for mercy. And this evil king was brought to turn from his wicked ways to know the Lord. And you say, well, how can it be? Well, let me give you some reasons why. And it starts, as I've said, with the wonderful grace of God. Think of Psalm 86, verse 5. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. Rich in mercy. Abundant in mercy. What a wonderful expression. Oh, you should mark it down in your thoughts and on your heart. God is rich in mercy. He is abundant in grace and love and kindness. This is how you account for the conversion of a man like Manasseh. You know, there's no other explanation. You know, you see it in Ephesians 2. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. You know, the word of God is full of these exhortations to consider this great grace, this sovereign grace, this astonishing grace, that even people like Manasseh can be saved. And there was Manasseh in prison, in chains, reduced to poverty and hunger. He had nothing. Everything had been stripped away. 
And there in the prison, suddenly the truth of his condition, the horrors of what he had done, pressed in upon him, conviction, humbling. He learned the lessons that he had never even begun to consider before. And all of his arrogance, all of his pride, all of his props, all the emptiness of his false religion is stripped away. And in his desperation, he is brought to pray to the living God, the one that he had despised, the one that he had hated and rejected. And now he finds himself on his knees, crying out to the Lord. And he was earnestly seeking. How incredible that his prayer was heard. And in fact, this prayer became well known amongst the people. Look at verses 18 to 20. The rest of the Acts of Manasseh, his prayer to his God, are written in the books of the kings of Israel, also his prayer, and how God received his entreaty and all his sin and trespass. His prayer became well known. The nation was able to read it and see. And the Lord purposed for it to be so, because it is a wonderful demonstration of his mercy and his grace salvation and deliverance and favor to those who do not deserve it. And the lesson is clear. If God can save Manasseh, he can save whom he pleases. Romans 9, 16, So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. God is not tied to man-made customs. He's under no obligation to fit in with our expectations. God doesn't choose and save on the basis of merit. None of us deserve to belong to him. And that's where we sometimes get things turned upside down. You know, maybe as you read this through, maybe as I explain about what Manasseh had done, we look at Manasseh and we say, well, you know, how was he granted salvation? When really we should be looking at God and in wonder at his graciousness. Romans 9.15, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. And if we're believers, God mercifully calls us to, though we are undeserving. And when we fully realize our predicament before we became children of God and, and our rebellion, which is deserving of condemnation and wrath and death, we can begin to understand the greatness of God's love and mercy for us. And we stop asking why God doesn't show mercy to some and we start wondering why does God show mercy to any? And it becomes a deep, uh, a matter of deep gratitude that he has made us heirs and children of God. You know, if you're a believer here this morning, you didn't do a single thing to earn the king's favor. I hope you're aware of that. You made absolutely no restitution for your rebellion. There is only one basis on which you have been adopted into his family, his mercy. His freely given mercy and grace, never deserved. And this truth will keep you humble when days are good. And it will give you all the hope you need when days are bad and you see your sin. You see, salvation is never about your merit. It is always and only about his mercy. And that's where we must begin with Manasseh, the wonderful grace and mercy of God. And then also we see to the life-giving power of God. You know, Manasseh was saved because God gave him spiritual life. You know, we must never forget, my dear friends, that all sinners are dead in their trespasses and sins. 
You know, we, we looked at it recently when we saw Jesus as the, the resurrection and the life. The Bible is clear. We are born sinners. We are not born good. You know, by nature, we are in rebellion against God. The Bible tells us that we are dead until we are unable to come to Christ. And it requires the same degree of God's power to save an evil man like Manasseh as to save a seemingly good man who is not a Christian. You know, imagine for a minute, you know, up here with me, you've got two people, one either side of me. And on one side, you've got a moral, decent, law-abiding citizen, but not a Christian. And then on the other side, you've got a, a wicked criminal, obviously not a Christian. Let me tell you, it requires as much of God's power to save the decent, virtuous sinner as to save the other one. And when a person is spiritually dead, nothing can save them but the infinite power of Jesus Christ. And the same power is needed to save someone who seems decent, but is anything but, as to save a hardened criminal. When God saves a person, they become a trophy of grace, and that is Manasseh. He is an extraordinary case of a man who is vile and abominable and idolatrous and corrupt, a persecutor of the people of God, and yet saved by grace. And you know, that leads us on to the next thing, which is this, that sinners may be saved even when they have an exceptional record for wickedness. You know, even those sinners who are as bad as you can imagine, in some cases, God is pleased to have mercy upon them. You know, we read of one in 1 Timothy. That's why we read that passage. You think of the apostle Paul, or Saul as he was, you know, God intervened in his life to save him at a time when he was doing what? He was thirsting for the blood of God's people. In fact, he was carrying letters from the high priest in Jerusalem going to Damascus to arrest the people of God, to imprison them, maybe even to execute them. But Paul was arrested by the Lord Jesus Christ, as it were. You know, he met with him and stopped him in his tracks and, and humbled him and convicted him and brought him to trust the Savior. And the very man who was the early church's fiercest enemy soon became one of its most powerful advocates. Why? Grace. You know, a man might be bigoted against the gospel. He might be hard in his heart. He might be fanatical for all types of falsehood. But no sinner is so hard but that God may save him. You see, all of this is the fruit of the death and passion of our Lord Jesus Christ, the agony and the sufferings of our great Savior. You know, the Bible says that the sinner who deserves condemnation is justified through faith alone in Christ alone, not as a result of some quality inherent to them, but as a result of the grace of God. You know, at Calvary, Christ takes the sinner's place. And now because of his finished work, God bestows upon us forgiveness and a declaration of righteousness. God justifies us by his grace as a gift. He doesn't save us because we're great or good, even because we're making progress. He saves those who confess and believe in Jesus Christ because of the immensity of his own great love. You know, as we think about these things, you say, well, what has this got to say to me? Is there a lesson which, you know, I can take home this morning? Is there some encouragement in this account of the conversion of Manasseh? Of course there is. 
No one will be refused by God if in this life they come to God for mercy. No matter how great your sins, no matter how black the record of your life, no matter how perverse and hard of heart you have been, the account of the conversion of Manasseh, king of Judah, assures you that God will forgive the sins of everyone who humbles himself, who comes in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ. You know, conversion begins, you know, as God works and humbles people. God breaks down their barriers. He crushes their pride. You know, one of the great troubles with our sinful hearts is that we are so very proud. So many people are enraged when they hear the gospel because it attacks their pride. And the problem with us all is that by nature, we are too proud. We don't want God. We don't want his mercy. We don't see our need for a savior. But when God begins to work in a life, you know, there is a humbling. And like Manasseh, they are brought to a right view of themselves and their state before the Lord. And we are to humble ourselves and, and to agree with God's declaration about our condition and say, Lord, you know, you are right. And I've been wrong. You are a holy God. Your judgment is true. I am a sinner. I've walked in rebellion against you and, and disobedience and, and wickedness in your sight. Oh God, please have mercy upon me. You know, that's the start. The humbling of the sinner, a great sign that God is working. And you know, let me encourage you. It is a great encouragement for those who are earnest in their desire to find peace with the Lord. And you say, well, Why? Because it shows that you don't have to wait until you're better. You know, you, you don't have to make yourself better or, or clean yourself up a bit before you come to the Lord. You know, you can't do it anyway. The Word of God says it's impossible, although some are still blindly trying. We're not called upon to sort of whitewash the outside to try and cover over the cracks or, or to pretend to be something that we're not. We're not called upon to be religious. We're told to come just as we are with all our sin and all our bankruptcy and to go to God and to acknowledge our, our sin to him and to cry out for mercy. And you know, the reality of this grace can actually be a stumbling block. Because it, it comes back to the pride. And, you know, when people realize, you know, that they, they can't do anything about their condition themselves, they rebel against that. You know, they, they want to bring something to the table. They want to contribute to their salvation. But the truth of the matter is we all come before the cross with nothing in our hands. You know, we couldn't hope to add a, even a single ounce to our work before God. It's when we realize that we have nothing that we're in the right position for Christ to be everything to us. And my question to you is this morning, is there anyone here who feels need of this? Is there anyone here who feels their life is wicked and they want to have peace with God? If there is, this man Manasseh is an inspiration to you. You know, you may be here and you may have heard the gospel many times and you're still without Christ. And is your problem really not explained before you here? Is it not really that... You know, you're too proud. You're still resisting and too proud to humble yourself before Almighty God. It's not, not the trouble with you. Too proud to pray. Too proud to cry out to the Lord. Too proud to listen to this book, the Bible. Perhaps just like this man Manasseh before he was humbled. 
Do you remember verse 10? The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they wouldn't listen. That's so often the case with so many people. That's their problem by nature, too proud to listen. But the good news is, if we humble ourselves and pray and seek the face of God, we will certainly find mercy, no matter how evil you've been, no matter how hard of heart you have been, he will hear you. It is his gracious promise. You know, that's the message. The gospel of grace. You know, forget all the clergy and so-called Christian spiritual leaders. They got so much to say about all manner of things with all of their apparently learned and clever statements. We don't need one fallen mind talking to another fallen mind. We need men who will bring this message of salvation, the truth of God, the gospel, the power of God, unashamedly in demonstration of spirit and power to repent and believe the gospel, to turn from your wicked ways and seek the Lord. That's the message that we are so much needing to hear everywhere today. And it's always been the same. It's no different at this hour. You know, this is our only hope. The grace of God. You know, maybe there is someone right here in this room this morning who's asking questions along this line. And, you know, we don't know what each other is thinking. And maybe there are one or two here when they hear this sermon concerning the gospel. When they get back home, they'll go on their knees and pray for mercy to God. May it be so. And you need to know that God hears the cry of desperation and faith. And if in your heart you truly desire to know the way to heaven, if in your heart you're asking God to give you light and understanding and grace, he is listening and he will hear you and he will answer you. You know, and as I finish, you know, maybe you think, well, I, I long for these things. I want to be saved. I, I want to be delivered. I want to know my sins forgiven. I just don't know where to begin. Well, let me help you as we close. Begin with your sin. Get alone with the Lord and think over the true state of your heart, all the wrong things that you have thought and said and done, and think on them and plead with God to forgive them and deal with them. The desire that your sin will be pardoned and dealt with and forgiven. You say, well, how can he do that? How can he forgive me? Through the work of Jesus upon the cross. And you begin with your sin, but by God's grace, you'll be taken to the foot of the cross to gaze upon the one who stood in the place of sinners. The Lamb of God who can take away your sin. And to be sure that there is not an ounce of you that would offer your own goodness as you reason for acceptance with God, only Jesus. He is all our hope. And that's the case for every one of us here this morning. And those who are in Christ, he is our only hope. You know, we're, we're not gathered here this morning to say somehow we've arrived or, you know, we're, we're moral or all these things. That's not it. We are sinners saved by grace, here only by the goodness and the mercy of God. And, you know, my dear friend, I'm not giving you advice that I don't follow. I myself have to keep going to the Lord for mercy to keep the person and work of the Lord Jesus ever in view. And you know something, all these years later, the more I go on, the more aware I am of my own sinfulness and great need for the mercy and the grace of God. You know, and the great encouragement and assurance from our passage is that even Manasseh is a, you know, as a barman with a life with all of his abomination and blood and murder upon his hand, even Manasseh could be forgiven. He sought the Lord.
and he was forgiven. And you can have that hope too. You know, as I finish, let me give you another example, a bit more sort of up to date. I could have given you many. But I don't know if you've ever heard of a man called Alves dos Reis. You say, well, no, I haven't. Well, he was one of the most notorious criminals that Portugal has ever known. He was a fraud. He was a counterfeiter at work in the years following World War I. And he was at the peak of his criminality in the 1920s. And uh, he was forging money and he was printed in such a brilliant manner that it was very difficult to discover. And for years, the government couldn't detect these notes and such was the manner of his scheming that he was also using sort of unauthorized official notes as well. It was, you know, incredibly complicated. And even though there were rumors and suspicions, uh, Rice was able to destabilize the whole economy of Portugal and to cause a, a crisis of confidence in the Bank of Portugal, as well as cause trouble for the government of the day. He was a criminal mastermind, and he didn't care about the impact that he was having as long as he himself was getting rich. And he was the big beneficiary. He made money through all of his dodgy criminal maneuvers, and he lived in this, this great palace of his own in Lisbon, the capital city of Portugal, living off the fruit of his crime for all to see. And really, it was only by accident, well, we say accident, it was the hand of God in providence, that the government discovered the issue and the fraud, and they got enough to convict this man. His sin was found out, and soon Rice was, was ripped from his palace, and he was thrown into prison. And he was sentenced for many, many years. And, you know, whilst he was in chains, he was visited by a missionary called George Howes. And this missionary would speak to him of the Lord Jesus Christ, the only saviour of sinners, and that there was grace enough to save even rights. And he, he, he wouldn't believe it. He couldn't believe it that he could be forgiven after all that he had done. But this missionary continued to go in and preach the gospel and to leave gospel tracts and leaflets in to read. And with so much time on his hands, Alves Race began to read these explanations of the gospel and the word of God. And God met with him and worked and in his affliction humbled and convicted of his sin. He called on the name of the Lord to be saved. And he was brought to saving faith in Jesus Christ and his life was changed. And you know, once he had served his sentence, he became a great preacher of the gospel. And now he is in glory. You know, and there are so many like that, so many testimonies of the grace of God. And all those years after Manasseh, all those years since the cross of Christ, God is still saving sinners. Like Alvis Race, like me, maybe by God's grace, like you. Who is a pardoning God like thee? Who has grace so rich and free? Will you not turn to the Savior this morning? Just as you are with all your sin. And he will forgive you. He will save you. He will deliver you. He will transform you. Because this grace of God is astonishing. That's wonderful. And it will be our song of praise through the ages that Jesus did all things well. All praise and glory be to his name. May you run to him and may God humble you but bring you to the cross to trust in the Savior.
who saves to the uttermost all that call upon his name. Amen.